Welcome to the Three Strands Podcast. Thank you for joining us. It's our hope and prayer that you will experience God's blessing in your life through our ministry. At Three Strands Church, our goal is to create a culture of redemption where people are free to experience the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. Hey, if you want to follow along in your Bible, we're going to be in a couple different spots today, but we're going to start out, or we're going to be primarily in Matthew chapter 26. The verses will be on the screen. You can follow along there also, but if you want to look it up on your phone or in a uh, hard copy of the Bible, this is a hard copy of the Bible. This is what everybody used to use before Bible, the Bible app, but, and so if you want to look that up and follow along, you can. It'll be in Matthew chapter 26 to get kind of rolling today, but um, I need a show of hands. This doesn't make you Pentecostal. Right, nobody's going to accuse you. If you grew up in a Baptist church, you can raise your hand. Nobody will think any less of you, all right? But I just need a show of hands here, all right? Uh, how many people, when you were a kid, or if you're a kid now, ever played freeze tag? You ever played freeze tag? All right, uh, raise your hand. Okay, some of you, like, had no life growing up. That, who, anybody didn't play freeze tag at one point in their life or another? Okay. So freeze tag, right? The basic idea of freeze tag, right, is you got one person who's it, and everybody else running around trying to stay, from the per- stay away from the person who's it. And the person that's it is trying to tag as many people as they can. And if they tag you, then you have to freeze right in place, right? Technically, you're not really supposed to move, but you're allowed to keep breathing. All right, so you freeze. And then the person who's it is trying to tag everybody and freeze everybody. And if they can freeze everyone, then they win and they no longer have to be it, right? And if you do get frozen, then one of your friends can come around and tag you and unfreeze you, right? Everybody understands how to play. All right, so I was thinking today we could start off with a game of freeze tag. No, I'm just kidding. That wouldn't be a good Easter. I'd be the only church in the county playing a game of freeze tag on Sunday morning, right? But you know what I'm talking about. Or how about how many of you played the game Simon Says when you were growing up or if you're a kid now, you played Simon Says? You never played Simon Says? No. It's all Addison says in your world. So Simon says, right? Okay, Simon says is a game where like somebody's it or somebody is Simon, right? And they tell you all kinds of stuff to do and you have to decide whether or not you're going to do it. And if they don't start the sentence off by saying Simon says to do it, then you don't do it. And if you do do it, then you're it, right? And so all the sentences have to start off with Simon says or without Simon says. So if I say raise your hand, you don't raise your hand. That was very good, right? If I say, Simon says raise your hand, then you have to raise your hand, right? Okay, so some of you are out because you didn't do it. All right, so, and, uh, so that's how Simon says That's kind of the idea, uh, those games behind this series, right? Freeze, this idea of not really cold because we want to say goodbye to the cold weather, right? But the idea of like kind of stopping in your place and, 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 and taking some direction from Simon says, or maybe like in this case, Jesus says, right? And, and it, it dictates whether or not we act or whether or not we stay still, whether or not we change our direction or whether or not we keep going in the same direction we've been going all along, right? Freeze, freeze. And some of you have heard that from like police before, right? Like freeze, freeze. <laughs> okay, that's just me and like three other people. Okay, so, uh, uh, okay. so a couple months ago, Stephanie and I and our kids, some of my favorite people in the whole world, we were at Walmart in Somerset, okay? And we did some shopping. I can't remember all that we got, but some different stuff. And we go to the checkout to, um, you know, to, to cash out and head home. And as we get up to the checkout, now I hadn't said anything, okay? 
So I don't know if I don't look like I belong around here. I know some people, like, you may think I don't sound, like I don't sound like I am from Kentucky maybe, but, but I thought you could blend in. Like I thought I just, just like the way I look, but I guess not because I guess I'm not rough. Maybe I'm not rough enough looking. I don't know. But like, uh, um, oh, man, I got a good picture I can show you guys next week of some guys in our church we took a picture of yesterday. You can find it on the screen here next week or at farmersonly.com. So it looks just like a picture you'd see on there, like city folk just don't get it. And so, uh, but I may show you that next week. But yeah, so we're at Walmart in Somerset. We're checking out, and we get to the front of the line, and there's a girl working the cash register. And I, none of us had said a word yet. And she says to me, y'all aren't from around here, are you? Okay. <laughs> so, so I'm like, so I said, no, not originally. I said, we live in McCreary County, but I'm originally from central Pennsylvania, and my wife's originally from north central West Virginia. And I was like, but it piqued my interest. So I said, what made you say that? Because we didn't say anything. You couldn't hear our accent. You know, I was like, what made you say that? This is what she said. I, and it, it just hang with me for a second. But this is what she said. She said, I could just tell because y'all were moving too fast. That's what she told me. I don't, know, I don't know what that means, right? And here's what's funny about that is right before she said that, this is no lie, no exaggeration. Right before she said that, I was thinking to myself, the rest of the family's not moving fast enough. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, hustle up, guys. I want to get going, you know? And it's just a different lifestyle here. Like, I am very, like, move, move, move. Kenny and I have talked about this a lot. I've talked with Opie about this over the years. Like, where I grew up, it's like if you go to the grocery store and you see somebody you know, you go down, like, a different aisle. Because <laughs> you're thinking, like, I want to get done and get out of here. But here, if you see somebody you know and you don't go down their aisle, you're rude right? So it's like you got to not only go down their aisle, but toss everything out that was on your agenda for the rest of the day and stand there and talk to them until for whatever reason it seems time to go. And it could be forever. They don't care. Like, I got nothing to do. They don't even care if you have something to do. It's just like, we're just going to talk, right? One time, Kenny and I were at a different church, and I can't remember what the guy was doing. It's like a heating and air guy or something. A heating and air guy came in to fix the heating and air, and Kenny and I were there. Kenny kept talking to the guy. <laughs> I was like, what are you doing? I, like, I pulled him aside. like, quit talking to that guy so we can get his job done. And Kenny was like, that's what you do. You love people. You talk to them. I was like, I get the job done so I can leave and go home. So just very different mindset. But all that to say, this series, super good for me. Because I tend to be very busy, especially in my mind. And so it's like I'm always thinking. My mind's always going, 100 miles an hour. Anybody that's part of what's going on behind the scenes here at our church will let you know that, like, my mind's always thinking about what they're supposed to be doing. Before I came up here, I was back there yelling at Carson and Kenny and Tuesday about stuff that wasn't happening the way I thought it should happen. It's like my mind's always thinking about what everybody else is doing and what I should be doing next. And I lay in bed sometimes at night for hours, literally, thinking about stuff I want to do or goals I've got or I've got a couple notes in my phone. If I think of something, I'll jot it down in my phone so I can get to it the next day. It's just the way I'm kind of wired, you know. And so uh, it's hard for me to like slow down. And this series kind of made me think of Kenny's series last year called Slow Your Roll. If you didn't hear that or you weren't here for that, you could check it out on our podcast. But this idea like there's times in life that we need to slow down. Now, I just want to say this for a few of you in the room. Not most of you but a few of you. There are some times in your life you need to speed it up, all right? You got to get going a little bit. 
But for most of us, like, there's some times where you, like, you got to slow it down a little bit and just freeze. And there's not all the time, but there's certain things in your life that you want to take that approach to. So that's what we're looking at in this series. So Jesus, Kenny said this in his series last year, Slow Your Roll, but Jesus was always busy, but never hurried. He always had a lot going on. In fact, he had so much ministry and, and conversations and healings and teaching times crammed into his short life that John wrote in John chapter 21, verse 25, that Jesus also did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. It's fair to say that Jesus had a lot going on, that he was busy. We don't even know the half of it from what's written in the Bible. But he always had stuff happening. But there were a few times in Jesus' life where he stopped dead in his tracks. Something caught his attention. Something convinced him to freeze in place, change his direction, address a situation, deviate from his original plan, and do something completely different. This series, I want to look at those things with you. I want to take one each week and kind of pull them apart, see what it was that Jesus did in those moments, and challenge us to do the same things. What are those things? What did Jesus do when those situations came up? I want to challenge you with those things because if you'll do what Jesus did, then you'll start to see what Jesus saw. Right? That's kind of how it works in the Bible. You, you see what Jesus did and you do the same thing and God lets you see the same results Jesus saw. And here's what happened. When Jesus had these moments where he allowed his schedule to get interrupted, where he allowed his busyness to be put on hold, and pay attention to something brand new, something that was so important that it made him freeze in place, and he acted on it, it gave his life extra strength. And it, it changed the world around him for the better. And it helped people that he loved and was closest to to grow in their faith. Now, wouldn't that be a legacy to leave? That you walked around the world with extra strength? that you changed the world for the better and that you, the people that were closest to you, that you loved the most, you were able to help them grow in their faith? Wouldn't that be like a great legacy to leave behind? That's the legacy we can leave behind if we'll freeze when Jesus froze, if we'll stop when he stopped. And so I want to challenge you with those things today. Start today in the first one. So today I want to talk with you about this first instance that Jesus froze. And they're not in chronological order because it's Easter and I wanted to start with this one today. So don't come up to me afterwards and yell at me that they're out of order because this I'll say this whole place is out of order if you say that, all right? But here's the first one, right? So when do you freeze? When's the first time you should freeze in your life? Here it is, you ready? When you're crushed with grief. All right, now stay with me for a second because I think a lot of people would hear that and think like, well, that makes sense. That's what I do when I feel real grieved, when I'm sad, when I'm depressed. I stop moving and probably binge eat. I just sit in my house and hibernate and hide. But, but stay with me a second. That's the first one. But I want to go further than that and say, like, but what did Jesus do when he experienced grief that was crushing him? And he didn't bury his head in the sand. He didn't binge eat, although he did have a dinner right before it. He didn't hide from the rest of the world. 
He didn't just cry and go off by himself. No, he engaged in some certain actions and some words. And I want to share those with you guys today because Jesus finds himself in this situation where he's overwhelmed. He's crushed with grief. It's in Matthew chapter 26. But Jesus was a man who knew grief and he understood sorrow. In fact, Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament, about a thousand years before Jesus lived, the prophet Isaiah writes this chapter. It's like a prophetic chapter all about what the Messiah would be like. And you maybe have heard some of those things if you've been in church before. He says things like uh, that he'd be bruised for our iniquities. He'd be crushed for our sins and uh, all of our punishment would be put upon him. You ever heard that before? He would be like a lamb led to the slaughter. But in that chapter is this phrasing that the prophet writes about Jesus where he says that he will be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And then you come to Matthew chapter 26 and you find Jesus overwhelmed, being crushed with grief. grief. And nowhere in the Bible does it record that Jesus laughed. Or smiled. I imagine he did, but it doesn't record that. But it does record several times that he was in grief, that he was crying, that he was sad. He was sad when he saw people that were lost and needed help. He was sad when one of his best friends died. And here you find him crying and sad when he's faced with his own deathbed. And so he understands what it's like to be in sorrow, to be crushed with grief. And so maybe you're here today and you're grieving, grieving the loss of a loved one, grieving the loss of something from your life, grieving the loss of years that are now behind you, grieving the loss of your physical health. You could be grieving all kinds of things that are crushing your spirit and causing you to be full of sorrow. Jesus understands it. And so I want to show you this first instant we're going to look at. Matthew chapter 26. Let me read it to you first. Jesus finds himself in a garden. And starting in verse 36, let me read it to you. Then Jesus went with them. Them is his closest friends, his apostles, his closest followers. Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter, James, and John and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping. For they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time saying the same thing again. Some of you feel just like those apostles right now, don't you? Like you can't hardly keep your eyes open. That's okay. Nobody's going to judge you. That's why we keep the lights low. So nobody will even know if you doze off. So here's this story. Jesus is crushed and overwhelmed with grief. 
But something great's going to come out of it. I hope you'll see it today. Because sometimes the greatest gift can come from your greatest grief. And sometimes when things look the darkest, that's when God's about to do something great for you. So I want you to see it in Jesus' life. What did he do when he felt anguish, when he felt beaten down by grief, when he felt crushed to the point of death? Here's what he did. You ready? He stopped. He froze. And he prayed. All right. I can tell by looking at you, you're all real smart. Most of you. Most of you. You're all real smart. So you're thinking like, well, that makes sense. I mean, who wouldn't pray when they've got a lot of grief? When they're at the bedside of a loved one who's about to die. When they're finding themselves in the, in the foxhole having just been shot. Who wouldn't pray in those moments, right? But, but what I want to do today is I want to kind of take it beyond just the peripheral like, oh, of course we'd pray when we feel grief. And I want to ask you two questions about it. Here's the first one. When you feel grief, do you do just what Jesus did? In other words, do you pray just like Jesus prayed? Or do you pray some different way? Do you say the things Jesus said? Do you think the things he thought? Do you do what he did? When you feel grief, do you freeze and do you pray? Do you freeze and do you pray? Because I know a lot of people, when they feel grief, they get busier. And they start to think like, well, if I can just keep my mind occupied, it'll make the grief go away. Or, or if I can just bury my head in the sand and pretend like nothing's happening around me, it'll just go away. I know a lot of people that are experiencing grief or have experienced grief because some relationship in their life has ended or is on the verge of ending. And what do they do? They put on that face like everything's okay. They don't do what Jesus did. They don't freeze and pray. They run and hide. Sometimes literally, sometimes figuratively. But I want to look at what Jesus did, kind of back up through it, and I want to challenge you guys to do the same thing he did. And here's the important part about it. Jesus freezing and praying when he felt overwhelming grief wasn't part of the plan it was the whole plan. Do you understand? Because I hear this a lot too. It's like I'm having grief. I'm in distress. I'm in anguish. My life's not going well. I'm upset. I'm sorrowful. And so I've tried everything. And I've even prayed. Like it's just one more thing to add to the list of things that I'm going to try to do to get over my grief. And what Jesus does in this passage is not a whole list of things to overcome grief and sorrow and pain and anguish in his life. He does one thing. Praise. He doesn't add it to the pile like it's this whole list. He knows that this is the thing he needs, not just most, but this is the thing he needs only. And so he prays. So is this the only part of your plan when you feel sorrow or grief? And then do you put it into practice just like Jesus did? So let me challenge you with it. I, I kind of started these all with S's because, you know, I guess I'm a little older than I should be, but so hopefully it'll be easier for you to remember, right? Let's break down how Jesus prayed. There's really six things that he prayed about. Let's break down those six. I'll give them to you real quick. You can jot them down if you're a note taker. Put them in your phone. They'd be good to remember. You could pray back through them on your own when you're feeling grief or feeling sad. 
Let me give you all six of them real quick from the story we just read, the pieces of Jesus' prayer, and then we'll look at some of them, right? So here's the first one I called the first one, supportive prayer. Supportive prayer. All right. Jesus didn't pray on his own. You guys saw that, right? What did he do? He rallied his friends together. He said, you guys stay here. You three come with me. I'm going to go pray. Stay, stay here and pray for me. Did you guys hear that in the story? Stay here and pray for me. Listen, praying in your grief, in your sorrow, in your difficulties, in the stuff of life that's overwhelming you can't be a solo sport. If you really want to overcome your grief, if you really want to access extra power from God, you can't keep it all to yourself. He rallied his friends together and he said, will you guys pray for me? And he didn't just ask them to pray for some unspoken prayer request. I don't even know where we came up with the unspoken prayer request. I can't find that in any Bible, right? But he's honest with them about how he feels, what he's going through. Guys, stay here and pray for me. I'm crushed with grief to the point of death. I asked somebody the other day, I was like, I sent him a text. I said, hey man, anything I can pray about for you? And they texted him back and they said, pray about everything for me, man. I need prayer about everything all the time. And I was just thinking like, tell me what's going on, man. Like, get real, get honest with me. I want to pray for you. I want to have your back. If you're my friend, I want to have your back. You don't have to hide. And Jesus didn't do that. He gets honest. He gets real. And he tells them, I need you to pray for me. Support me. Supportive prayer. And I always come back, and I've shared this with our church many times, but like, I always come back to James 5.16. And there's a lot of Christians walking around that know that if they want to be forgiven of their sins, they got to confess their sins to God, right? I mean, doesn't 1 John 1.9 say, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Absolutely. So there's Christians walking around all over the place that have been forgiven from their sins but never healed. Because James 5.16 says, confess your faults one to another and pray for each other so that you might be healed. But they bought into the 80s bumper sticker that says Jesus and me are a majority. I don't need everybody else. I can be equally as much of a Christian at the coffee shop as I can in the church. No, you can't. Because you need surrounded by some friends who love Jesus that will have your back when things are rough. And so you better get real with them if you want to get healed. Time won't heal all wounds, but God will if you do it his way. So supportive prayer. Here's the second part of Jesus' prayer. It was simple prayer. Did you catch that? It was simple prayer. There wasn't a lot of words to it. It wasn't real eloquent. He just kind of said a simple prayer. You know what his simple prayer was? Here, here was I've shared this with, I don't know, 100 guys in the last 10 years who were trying to overcome addiction to alcohol or porn or drugs. Here it is, ready? This was his prayer. Let me sum up the two sentences he said in one word. Ready? Help! Right? Help! When you're drowning, when you're overwhelmed with grief, if you're looking at the lifeguard who's got the life preserver, you don't have a heart-to-heart -heart with them. 
You don't negotiate with them. Hey, man, throw me that life preserver. I'll do you a solid later. You just, help. That's what Jesus said. I mean, he did it in two sentences. Father, take this off of me. I don't want to go through this. But if it's what you want, I'll do it. What was he saying? I don't want to do this. Help me. Simple prayer. Sometimes we get too fancy. And God's not impressed with our long-winded prayers or our eloquent words or us piecing together some, a bunch of stuff that ends in TH like we were born in the 1600s. What he wants is us to just come to him with simple, desperate honesty. Help me. Is that what your prayer looks like? We're only two in. Is it supportive prayer where you're recruiting a bunch of friends who love Jesus to watch for you and to beg God for help for you? Does your prayer sound simple? God, I don't even know what to say. Just help. Or is your prayer some memorized thing I just do before I eat? God, thank you for this food. I appreciate it. In Jesus' name, I pray, man. Like you, don't even, you can't even tell you it's like all slurred together. It's just ritual now. Or are you desperate for help with simplicity? Here's the third piece of Jesus' prayer, right? It was the same prayer. It was the same prayer over and over. Do you guys get that? He comes and checks on his friends. They're sleeping. That's got to be discouraging. But then he goes back and prays a second time and a third time and all three times. Guess what? He says the same thing. He just keeps repeating it. Guess what? Sometimes when you're overwhelmed with grief and you're sorrowful and you're miserable and life has got you crushed to the point of death, you better just keep begging God for help over and over again. Somebody told me once, like, well, if you pray for something more than once, you must not have faith. And I was like, well, if you pray for something only once and you're not following what God says to do. Because here Jesus just prayed for the same thing at least three times. In fact, Jesus told a whole parable about that. You're supposed to go to God's door, knock on the door, begging for what you need help with. And if he's in there sleeping, he'll eventually get up, not even because he really wants to help you, just because he wants you to stop begging him. Just stop leaving me alone. Just leave me alone. I'm trying to sleep. Here's what you're asking for. Over and over again. Don't tell me you're desperate to get over your grief if you only ask one time. No, if I'm desperate, if I'm desperate to get a job, I call the employer and find out how my resume's looking. I asked him if I can do anything else. I was like, can I come in? Have you made a decision yet? I want to know until I get the job. You find a girl you want to date, you ask her once, and she shoots you down. There's a guy out there just walks away. That's not how I rolled. It's like, I'm going to wear her down, right? Are you desperate for that date? Are you desperate for that job? Are you desperate to not be crushed to the point of death anymore? Then you better be begging God for help day after day. Sometimes 20 times a day, I got to beg him for help. The same prayer. For the fourth piece, I got to go to a parallel passage because this story is recorded in all four Gospels, parts of it at least, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So let me go to a piece in Mark that isn't in Matthew. I'm going to show it to you. It's in Mark chapter 14, verse 35. Here's what it says. He went on a little further, that's Jesus. Jesus went on a little further and fell to the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. 
Here's the piece you missed from Matthew, right? Jesus goes off by himself. Mark says, he fell to the ground. Luke says he gets down on his knees. He took a position of humility and lowliness. He gets down as low as he can get to show God this fourth piece of his prayer, which is submissive prayer. Is your prayer submissive? You know, I know it's nice to be comfortable, but sometimes it's a good idea to get your face on the ground if you're desperate. There's something about taking a low position physically, bending my knee, bowing my head, laying flat on the ground to let God know I'm helpless and only you can help me right now. Submissive, humble, lowly. And Jesus does that. Submissive prayer. The next verse in Mark, verse 36, chapter 14, verse 36. Listen to what he says here. There's another piece that's missing in Matthew. He says, Abba, Father. Abba is just an Aramaic word, translated from an Aramaic word. It just means like Daddy, dear Father, dear Dad. He says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. What's he saying? Can you imagine if you got kids? Like hearing one of your kids call out, Daddy, help! And you just turning your face from them. This is where the crucifixion started. It didn't start when they drove nails into his hands, when they hung him up on a cross. It started right here in Gethsemane. When Jesus cried out to his dad for help, and his dad turned his face away from him and gave him no answer. Now grief is even compounded by the fact that not only am I grieving what's about to come in my life, but I'm on my own. My closest friends have fallen asleep. My God and dad has turned his back on me. And I'm left on my own to face this. To face the accusations and the torment and the torture, the punishment that I don't even deserve. And he shows us in this verse 36 the fifth piece of his prayer, which is sincere prayer. Crying out, not for help, just from the God of the universe, but crying out for help from his dad. Does your prayer sound like that? Is this some kind of religious ceremony that takes place in your home, around a dinner table, or at a church building? Or is it crying out sincerely to your dad to rescue you? Look back at the passage we looked at first in Matthew chapter 26. In verse 39, you can see the sixth piece of Jesus' prayer. Here it is. I'll read it to you again. It's in verse 39. He went on a little further and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. And here it is, the most important phrase of the whole prayer. You ready? Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. I want your will to be done, not mine. And Mark and Luke, they all repeat this. And every time he goes and prays, he repeats this. And what he's showing us is this sixth piece of his prayer, which is surrendered prayer. This is where the battle over life and death ended. It didn't end 
when he died on the cross. It ended right here when he surrendered his will to the Father's will. Everything else after that got easier for Jesus. Before this moment, what you see from Jesus is tears, sorrow, grief, and a spirit that feels crushed to the point of death. And what you see every second after he submits his will to the Father is courage, inner strength and quietness, and no fear. No matter what they do to him. Something changed in this moment when he surrendered his will to the Father's. Everything changed when Jesus uttered these words. And I wonder how often when we pray, we utter those words. I mean, we're good at telling God what we need and what we want. We're even good a lot of times at telling him what we're thankful for. But how many times does our prayer include, God, no matter what you want, that's what I want. No matter how long this grief lasts, I want what you want. No matter how long I'm in this pain, I want out of it, but I want what you want more than I want out of the pain. How often does it sound like that? I want to marry somebody, but God, if it's your will for me to be single a little longer, I want that instead. How often does our prayer sound like Jesus' prayer when we feel grief or sorrow or pain? I get it. We hurt. Somebody died. Somebody's sick. We've lost somebody. Something we value is gone. But how often does our prayer sound like this, that Jesus prayed? Luke's account adds an interesting piece to this last step. He records essentially the same words I just read from Matthew 26, 39. But let me read you what he kind of adds to it here, starting in Luke 22, verse 42. He says this, Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me, Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. That sounds just about the same, right? But then he adds verse 43. Listen to what happened right after Jesus submitted his will to the Father's will. Listen to what happens next in verse 43. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. Huh. I'd love to have extra strength to get through this grief. You ever met somebody who lost a loved one and can't get over it? And 20 years later, the slightest little thing can drive them to tears because they still miss that person like they were there right beside them? It's not wrong to grieve, but I'm just saying, like, wouldn't you, if you were that person, love to have an extra dose of strength to get through those grieving moments? Here it is. Pray like Jesus prayed, and you'll get what Jesus got. And he surrenders his will to the Father, and instantly God sends an angel to strengthen him. Now, that's not how I would have written the Bible. God didn't consult me on how to write these verses. But if he had, I would have sent the angel to get him out of there. I'm going to send an angel. Don't worry, Jesus. You surrendered your will to me. You're willing to do whatever I ask of you? No problem. Angel, Go rescue him. Go take him out of the grief. Go deliver him. He doesn't have to do it anymore. He proved it already because he was surrendered to me. But instead, Jesus still has to die. Jesus still has to be tortured. God didn't get him out of it. He prayed all the right things, and God let the grief remain. 
But what he did do was send an angel to give him extra strength. Okay, so if I was writing the next verse, verse 44, be like, I got you, God. I got what's going on here, okay? Jesus prays all the right things. He surrenders his will to you. You send an angel to give him extra strength. And I'm envisioning Jesus being like, you know, pulling the, the S back on his chest. Like, now I'm ready. And then verse 44 should be like, Jesus went out, crushed all the enemies, and they lived happily ever after. And now what the next verse should be? But that still isn't what comes. He still has to die. He still has to be tortured. And thank goodness he was, because without it, I'd be hopeless. If he didn't die for me, I'd be on my own to pay for my own sin. If he didn't rise from the dead for me, it'd be up to me to come back from the dead. A lot of times in middle school life group, uh, uh, he might be in sidekicks today, but Johnny will tell you, I say this all the time, right? But like, listen, the only reason I follow Jesus, you ready? The only reason I follow Jesus is because he came back from the dead. That's it. I'll follow you right now. I'll give you my money. I'll serve you. I'll sing songs to you. I'll tell other people about you. All you have to do is take your own life and bring it back. And I'll do whatever you tell me to do. That's what Jesus did for me. That's why I follow him. That's why I, I don't follow the teachings of Muhammad. It's why I'm not a Buddhist. It's why I'm not a Taoist. It's why I'm not an atheist. It's why I'm not an agnostic. It's only because Jesus came back from the dead. So thank God he decided to keep going. That's the only thing that makes him better, that makes him different. It's how he showed he was really God. And so Luke adds this interesting piece where Jesus gets extra strength because of his, not just prayer, but his attitude of surrender to what God was saying. Let me read you what verse 44 really says, because I'm, I'm thinking, like, it should get better now, right? Because Jesus got extra strength, so he's going to live happily ever after. But here's what verse 44 really says. Ready? Then he prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. And if you're in one of our life groups just a few weeks ago, we covered this. It's called hematidrosis. And it's where the capillaries in your face or your hands are so strained from stress that they literally burst and you bleed from your face and hands. Jesus was still in agony. He was still grieving. He was still in pain, so stressed out about it that he started to sweat blood after God gave him extra strength. Do you understand what you need when you're grieving, when you're sorrowful, when you're overwhelmed and crushed to the point of death is extra strength from God because it might not get better, it might get worse. And so you need God to give you extra strength because you might be able, you might be on the verge of the agony intensifying to the point of bleeding. And I need that extra strength to get through it. I don't know, if you missed everything else today, let me kind of sum it up for you like this. Let me see if I can show you what I'm talking about. Suffering, here's an equation for you, right? Suffering plus surrender equals strength. Not always deliverance. Not always. Not always rescue. Sometimes, but not always. You may pray and ask God for something a thousand times, and he may say, no, no, 
not on my watch. My grace is all you need. You'll be able to get through this, but I'm not going to take you out of this. But here's some extra strength because you're willing to do whatever I say to do. Because you're willing to bend your knee and yield to me. My suffering plus my surrender equals extra strength from God. We also find out in Luke's account, and this wasn't in the one I read from you in Matthew. This is kind of like a bonus for you. But he says in, in verse 38 or 39, I can't remember now, but he says what Jesus did here was his regular routine, his regular place to go pray. You want to become a better prayer. Like, it's always hard for me to pray. Like, what do I do? Here's a tip. You ready? Get yourself a specific place and a specific time to pray every day. Make it your routine like Jesus did, your habit. Nobody was surprised that he wanted to go pray in the garden. He did it all the time. And then I love the glimpse into Jesus' psyche that John records in his account of this event. Just as Jesus finishes praying this prayer, three times, maybe a hundred times, who knows, over the course of about an hour or two, just as he wraps up praying, here comes Judas towards the garden, the one who would betray him, with a contingent of Roman soldiers and high priests around him. This word in here used for contingent of Roman soldiers or detachment of Roman soldiers, it's a Greek word that could mean in a Roman uh, vernacular any amount of soldiers from 50 to 1,000. So I need you to understand what Judas is coming at Jesus with to betray him is a minimum of 50 soldiers, maybe up to 1,000 Roman soldiers. Why would they send that many soldiers to get Jesus and his 11 followers at this point? Why? Because they were afraid that arresting Jesus, you find this out a couple chapters earlier because they didn't want to arrest him during the daytime. You find out they were afraid that arresting Jesus would start a riot, that the people of Jerusalem would revolt, fight back against Rome. So they were afraid to come get Jesus, and they thought, if we're going to get him, we better have enough soldiers with us to take these 11, 12 guys down. So minimum 50 Roman soldiers show up with Judas, maybe up to 1,000 Roman soldiers show up with them. They come to arrest Jesus. And I love this about Peter. Like, I relate to Peter a lot. And Peter screams out. He's like, Lord, here they come. We brought the swords. What do you want us to do? You want us to fight? I'm like, Peter, there's at least 50 of them, dude. There's 12 of us. Probably not a good move. You see what, you see what Peter was doing here? He wasn't actually saying to Jesus, hey, should we fight so we can defeat? No, what he was really saying was, Jesus, I'm ready to die with you. Let's fight to the death. What you find out in all these passages was that the reason the apostles fell asleep when they were praying wasn't because they were lazy jokers, right? It's because they too were overwhelmed with grief. They knew things weren't going as planned. They knew things weren't trickling down the way they thought they'd trickle down. Jesus was no longer the same person they thought he was going to be. Everybody's trying to kill you, Jesus. He's been telling them, I have to die. And Peter steps up. He's like, what should we do? Should we fight to the death? And I want to show you what John records because then Peter picks up his sword and fights without even waiting to hear what Jesus says. He just goes at it in verse 10 of John 18. It says, Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. Jesus ends up healing this guy's ear, which is super cool, like superhero, superpower, kind of cool stuff anyhow. But he, 
Peter slices off this guy's ear, and the guy's like standing there, you know, missing an ear. Peter's like, let's keep fighting. And I want you to see Jesus' response after that happens, because what Peter did is how we feel when we feel grief. When I get angry or sad or overwhelmed or crushed, it's exactly what I want to do is go out and fight somebody to make it right. I'm sick of this. I'm sick of the way this country's going. I'm ready to fight. I'm sick of the way this relationship's going. I can't stand you anymore. I'm sick of the way you're treating me. I'm going to yell about it a little louder. I'm ready to fight to make the grief end. I'm ready to fight to change the direction of the sorrow on my own. But Jesus is a new person right now. He's not crying anymore. He's not crushed with grief anymore. He's got a renewed sense of inner, inner strength. And Jesus' response isn't like, Peter, don't do that. We'll get killed. It's not the right time. I'm supposed to get on a cross. Don't have him kill us with sword. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, Peter, keep fighting. Take as many of them as you can. I'm going down, but if I'm going down, we're going to drag as many of them down with us as we can. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't run and hide. This is what he says in verse 11. What? Look. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? What's he say? Stop fighting. Stop fighting. Should I not carry the burden, the suffering, the plan, the grief that God has allowed on my life? And should I not do it with honor? When suffering hits my life, there's no way I'm running away and hiding. I remember for Stephanie and I, like 13 years ago, we were, I was faced with this exact question. We were jo- I was jobless. She wasn't jobless. I was jobless, had just like wrecked my reputation in this community. Didn't know what we were going to do next. Had several talks about it. Weren't in the best place for sure in our marriage. Thought we were going to get divorced. And I remember this question coming up in my head. Where are we going to go? We tossed around Hawaii for a little bit because, you know, everybody wants to go to Hawaii at some point. And I remember landing on this. I was like, my whole life, I've never been one to run away. And I don't care how I have to feel or how many people look at me weird or what I got to put up with. I'm going to stand my ground. I brought it on myself. It's causing me a lot of grief, a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, feeling crushed to the point of death. But shall I not carry that burden? Start to do it as a man of honor for the Lord? Do you pray like Jesus prayed? Do you surrender like Jesus surrendered? Stop fighting! Should I not carry the suffering God's allowed in my life? It's as if Jesus now has a renewed sense of peace and inner calm. It's as if he actually humbled himself before God, prayed desperately for what he needed, but also surrendered his will to the fathers and now has extra strength to face what's ahead. And if he hadn't, each one of us would be headed for hell with no hope on the horizon. But with his death 
and resurrection, we no longer have to be doomed to an eternity without God. I meet a lot of people when they feel grief or when they feel any problem in their life, their answer is to do more. Do, 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 do more. Keep doing more. I talk with a lot of guys about the difference between trying harder and trying less. What Jesus did in this moment was try less and depend more on God. You know what happens if you keep doing stuff to try and manage your life, manage your grief, overcome your pain? You keep doing stuff, you keep doing and doing and doing. Eventually it just starts to feel like a bunch of doo-doo. Is that lack of a better way to say it? But you're in the middle of a bunch of doo-doo. You've got to stop relying on what you can do-do and start relying on what Jesus has done-done. Does that make sense? And so Jesus did all the work for me. I don't have to fight. Jesus is offering me extra strength. I don't have to work it out on my own. What I have to do is the same thing Jesus did. Does your prayer sound like Jesus' prayer? Today could be the first time you pray like that. You don't have to be overwhelmed with grief anymore. You don't have to be on your own anymore. You don't have to be hopeless anymore. You don't have to wonder if you're going to be in heaven someday anymore. No, today you can surrender your will to God. Hey God, from now on, you're in charge. I'm not counting on anything that I could ever do. I'm only counting on everything you've already done to save me. And in that moment, guess what God's going to do for you? Extra strength. Extra strength. You go to lots of different churches. You can hear it said a lot of different ways. Regeneration, salvation, become a Christian. The Holy Spirit invades your life. Whatever you want to call it. But in that moment, you get brand new life, brand new existence, extra strength for whatever lies ahead. And eternity starts right now, not when you die. It starts right now. And you can have the same inner peace, inner strength that Jesus experienced even when he was crushed to the point of death. And the only thing I want to ask you guys today to end is this. What will it take? What will it take for you to surrender your will to Jesus's? What will it take? Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for Easter, for what it represents, and I thank you for our church. I pray that right now you would give the people in our crowd the courage to step out in faith and simply say to you, no fancy words, no eloquent speech, but just say to you, God, help. I need your help. Rescue me, save me. But even if you don't, whatever you want for my life, I want it too. I hope the next five minutes where we sing will be your moment of praying like Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane.